Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the Phenomenal Fan Podcast, episode number 29. By the title, you'll be able to tell straight away that the sports world is rigged. We will explain exactly why. It's so obvious. It's right in front of our faces, and nobody can exactly explain why that is. So we will get into why sports are rigged. We'll get into the Stanley Cup. Avalanche are one went away from winning the entire thing, the whole enchilada. And we've got a hot take for the ages. So stick around for all of it. We appreciate you guys tuning in as usual. Let's get into episode number 29 of the Phenomenal Fan Podcast. The Phenomenal Fan Podcast. A podcast by the fan for the fan. got some breaking news breaking news as of about an hour and a half ago or maybe more breaking news arch manning has ended his football career early what does that mean it means Arch Manning has committed to the University of Texas to play college football. His uncle Peyton went to Tennessee. His other uncle Eli went to Ole Miss. And supposedly, Arch was down to three schools. Alabama, Georgia, and Texas. And he decides to choose the absolute worst choice of those three. Now, financially speaking, he's going to make a ton of money. He's going to make a ton of money from the NIL deals at Texas because Texas is so loaded with cash. They're going to be paying him out the ass to play football at Texas indirectly, right? NIL. The problem is for Arch Manning is that he is so, I don't know, I don't want to say in over his head, but the problem for Arch Manning is he's not going to show up and all of a sudden make Texas a great football team. It takes the entire school, the entire, it takes the whole program. And when you have a team like Texas who doesn't seem to win more than six or seven games a season, who is going to find themselves in the SEC competing against Alabama and Georgia and Auburn and Ole Miss and Florida and Tennessee and Texas A&M, the number one recruiting class. Texas 
with or without Arch Manning, is going to get destroyed in the SEC. The word on Arch Manning is he's as good as it gets. He is the number one quarterback in his class. And that's great for the University of Texas. But I think there's just as good a chance of Arch Manning going to Texas, being very successful and finding himself as a top draft pick in the NFL as there is him going to Texas, playing poorly because the program isn't run as tightly as the others. Actually, let me say this. There's just as good a chance of Arch Manning going to Texas, playing his ass off, winning a bunch of games, and being a top pick in the NFL draft, as there is same chance of him going to Texas, his level of play coming down because he's playing at Texas with where all they do is, is lose games. His level of play comes down. The program stays in the middle to bottom of the pack like it has been for the last 15 to 20 years. And Arch Manning finds himself as a late first round, early second round pick. Or he transfers. In which case, good for him. But I think this was a financial decision and he's going to make a lot of money playing at Texas. Uh, But he's not going to win a lot. He's not going to win a lot of games. I mean, I'd imagine if he's there for the three full years, I'd imagine he walks out of there with probably 21 to 22 career wins. That's my guess. And the real test will come. Well, I don't know if I'd call it a test because Arch isn't going to be there, but The best indicator of what I'm saying is coming up this fall when Alabama plays Texas in Austin. If and most likely when Alabama beats them by 30 or 40 points, Arch is going to see that happen and think, uh, I might have made the wrong decision. So good for Arch, I guess, you know, go get your bag. But, uh, I don't like the decision for him because I think he's he's limiting himself uh, to whoever had the most money, essentially, and that's not ideal. It's not ideal for anybody because a lot of times whoever has the most money isn't necessarily the best choice. So Arch Manning's going to Texas is what it is. Nothing we can do about it now. He's fully committed. I think there's a good chance he ends up transferring. Uh, I don't know. Just my opinion. That's all this show is, is my opinion. The Stanley Cup uh, is almost over. It's going to be over tomorrow night. We are recording this on Thursday, June 23rd, 2022. The Avalanche win game four last night in overtime over the Tampa Bay Lightning. Nazem Kadri comes off the shelf, wasn't technically reported as a long-term injury, but hurt himself in the last round of the playoffs, comes back, scores the game-winning goal. Avalanche take a 3-1 to series lead 
coming back to Denver to play at home on a Friday night. Sorry, Tampa, but it's over. It's over. Even if by the grace of God, the Avalanche don't win tomorrow, Tampa Bay needs to win three games in a row, two of which are on the road in Denver. The likelihood of that happening is like the likelihood of Arch Manning winning a national championship in Texas. It's not impossible, but it ain't going to happen. So good for the Avalanche for being able to put themselves in this position. I know I said it's over, over, but it's not technically. But the Avalanche are in such a good spot. Um, They've proven that they can handle themselves against the top goalie in the world, Vasilevsky for uh, Tampa Bay Lightning. He is a great goalie, but the basically the recipe for the Avalanche, which has been the recipe for the entire year, is show up. Play good enough defense. Have Darcy Kemper as your goalie. Play have good enough presence in net to make enough saves, and then let the offense just go ballistic. I mean, Nathan McKinnon, Kale McCarr, as we said, Nazem Kadri, Landeskog. They have like fifteen dudes that are just monsters. Monsters. They are so high powered on offense that they're never. They were never going to get like shut down by Vasilevsky in in uh, in net for Tampa Bay. They weren't going to get shut down. He's a good goalie, but they put up seven goals on him in game two, and then they've put up. I think you know. I think they put up four in game one. They put up seven in game two. They put up two in game three, and then last night they put up three. But it was enough. It was enough. So Tampa Bay back to back Stanley Cup champions. They are most likely not going to make it a three-peat, which is fine. But, I don't know. I think Tampa Bay is a really good team. I just think watching these games, if you haven't had a chance, man, tune into the Stanley Cup. If it's just game five or it's it's anywhere else, I don't know, but I would say... Watching the Avalanche play, as I have in the, in the postseason, I mean, I live in Colorado, been rooting for them pretty heavily, and they just seem like they're just like two steps above everybody, at least in the terms of speed, in terms of offensive opportunities, in terms of execution, in terms of their power play. The Avalanche, like, they scored last night on the power play. They, got, they had two power plays, then one for two. But their power play goal conversion rate is like unbelievable. I mean, you put them up by a up uh, a man on the ice, they score, they score. And even when it's even strength, they still like they went into overtime last night, and I could have sworn the Avalanche were on a power play the entire overtime. It just dominating, holding the puck in the zone. Passing it around. There's constantly a guy open. Pressure in front of the net. Throwing pucks at the net. Rebounds. It just felt like Tampa Bay was short a guy. But they weren't. So I'd be absolutely shocked if the Avalanche don't close this game out tomorrow night. Friday night. In Denver. At home. 
I'd be shocked, especially after the demoralizing loss they just handed to the Tampa Bay Lightning. I think it's more likely that the Avalanche close it out on Friday night. The game last night finished 3-2. to two. Did not go over the, the run total. Or uh, not the run total, the puck total, I guess you could say. Whatever you want to. The total number of pucks. Uh, they had it listed at five and a half, finished with five. It was the first time in the Stanley Cup that it had not gone over the total. And people were saying, well, not people, but some people were just like, oh, of course, you know, it goes over three games in a row. Now it's enticing everybody to bet the over. They go under. Uh, that stuff to me is a little bit less, you know, rigged, I guess, if you will, because at least in that case, you can be like, well, they just played good defense. They did whatever. And we were watching the game. None of it looked like it was rigged, especially when you score goals. It's the players going out there to play. It's nothing that was really impacted by the referees. Uh, there were a couple missed calls by the referees last night in the game, a couple penalties that should have happened both ways. And they didn't call, but again, overall, it's just they kind of had this stigma by the referees last night where everyone's like, yeah, that just looks like they're just letting them play. That's fine. Just let them play then. But when you have a situation like what has gone on in Major League Baseball, specifically from a guy like Doug Eddings, okay? Doug Eddings is a Major League Baseball umpire. And if this isn't proof of rigging games, then I don't know what it is, okay? After every game, every day in the Major Leagues, there's a Twitter account called Umpire Auditor, and they release a scorecard for the performance of an umpire throughout a game, and it's based on where the pitches are located relative to the strike zone. It shows the teams, the date, the overall accuracy of the calls, the consistency of the calls, and then it shows a strike zone, shows everything else, it also has called ball accuracy and called strike accuracy. So Doug Eddings, Doug Eddings on May 26th umpired a game between the guardians and the tigers. He missed one pitch the entire game, one pitch called strike on the outside corner that wasn't technically a strike by the umpire's view. But he missed one pitch in the entire game. One pitch. Okay? And when they release these umpire scorecards, they're also able to determine, based on which way the calls went and which way they favored a certain team, how many runs it favors one team or another. And in this case, it favored Cleveland by a quarter of a run. And Cleveland, by the way, still lost the game. So, it's a wash. A few nights ago, June 21st, Blue Jays-White Sox, Doug Eddings behind the plate. 
He missed a ton of pitches. He missed a ton of pitches, okay? Look at this strike zone if you get a chance. And when you see the scorecard, there's a couple things that stand out at you. Number one, his called strike accuracy was 64%, which is 24% below league average. On top of that, because of the way the calls were favoring certain teams throughout the game, it was calculated that the umpire overall factored, uh, the umpire favored the White Sox overall by more than two runs in the game. Final score, White Sox seven, Blue Jays six. White Sox won by a run. And the ref, not the ref, the umpire, Doug Eddings, favored the White Sox by two runs. How easy is it for an umpire to get a little note before the game, we need the White Sox to win? Okay. Calling close pitches, right? A couple of them farther off than others. But one thing you can do is expand the zone when the Blue Jays are batting and tighten it up a little bit when the White Sox are at the plate. I'm just saying. He goes from May 26th, 98% called strike accuracy. Wait, yeah, 98%. May 26th, 98% called strike accuracy. June 21st, 64% called strike accuracy. What's going on there? Is that just a coincidence? Did he have a bad night? We will never know. We will never know the true meaning behind him having such a drastic shift in performance. We will never, ever, ever know. The other part that was pretty interesting is that the called ball accuracy, it's not like he added on more balls. Like he was, he wasn't squeezing uh, the Blue Jays and giving more balls on close pitches. He was just calling a ton of strikes against the Blue Jays as hitters. There were 70 called strikes in the game, 25 of them. 25 were not actually in the strike zone. 25 pitches. Pitch number, uh, there's a, by the way, there's the way they're also able to calculate this is the impact of the missed calls. So the number one most impactful, largest change in run expectancy in the game was example number one, if you, can, if you see this, it's a pitch that's down and away off the plate, and it lists top of the eighth, Ruiz to Espinal, so the Blue Jays were batting, two outs, bases loaded, three and two count. Ball off the corner, it's called for a strike three. If he calls out a ball, a run scores. If he doesn't call it a ball and he rings him up on strike three, the inning's over. Second, uh, second example, another pitch on the other side of the plate, way off. One out runner on first, three and two count again to a Blue Jays batter, and it's called strike three. Top of the 10th, example three. 
Kendall Graveman pitching to Matt Chapman. Two outs, runners on first and second. Two and two count. A ball outside the zone, below the zone, is called strike three. What is going on? What is going on? Why is that happening? Why? It's all Blue Jays guys getting rung up on close-ass pitches with two outs and runners on base. What is going on? Why? It's weird, man. Shit's fucking weird. It's... I don't know, man. It's not rigged, but maybe it is. Might be rigged. <laughs> I'm not going to be the one to tell you it is, and I'm not going to be the one to tell you it isn't. Okay. The last thing we wanted to touch on here in today's episode is an absolutely just scorching take. Scorching take. Okay? This guy goes by Timo Risk, Risk or Risky? Timo Risky. Actually, I think it's Risk. Timo Risk. He does data science for pro football focus. Hot take. Based on the news of Hunter Renfro signing a two-year, $32 million contract with the Las Vegas Raiders, Timo Risk says the Raiders paid 60% of what the Rams paid to the same exact player. That is in reference to Cooper Cup's contract, where he signed a three-year contract for $80 million. So Timo Risk's point is the Raiders paid 60% of what the Rams paid to the exact same player, basically saying Hunter Renfro and Cooper Cup are the same player. And that is so wrong. Oh, what a horrible take. His points were that they have very similar usage and route trees. Cooper Cup runs more routes than McVeigh staple uh, that are McVeigh staples, offensive staples, deep crosses, uh, shallow digs to the sideline, stuff like that. But Cooper Cup is so much better than Hunter Renfro. That's not a dig on Cooper. Or, uh, that's not a dig on Hunter Renfro. Hunter Renfro is a great player. He's a great player. But Cooper Cup, at this exact moment, is Cooper Cup right now is the best receiver in the NFL. 
I don't know if that'll stay. I don't know if it'll stick like that. But Cooper Cup is so good and had such a monster year that saying he's the same player as Hunter Renfro is so disingenuous. It's so... It's obviously probably more clickbaity than anything because he obviously doesn't actually believe that because if he did, he wouldn't work at Pro Football Focus. But I think both guys got exactly the money that they deserved. Cooper Cup is such a monster. He deserved that big, fat contract. I think Hunter Enfro deserved a good bag, too. $16 million a year? It's not bad. He's not the best receiver in the NFL. He's not, probably not top five in the NFL. So why would he get top five money? He got exactly what he's earned and deserved, which is a good bag, playing well. Both guys have grinded their asses off. They're both small. They're both white. I get it. I know that they look similar. They have similar playing styles. Cooper Cup, his route running, man, and his ability to just make ridiculous catches is crazy just crazy it's such a monster year such a monster year so big so i don't know man renfro's usage is going to go down raiders picked up a wide receiver by the name of Devonte adams this offseason ever heard of him he played at Fredno's, uh, Fresno State with Derek Carr. So Hunter Renfro's usage, probably going to get cl cut close to half of what it was. He was the primary receiver. He was the primary target for the Raiders. Not anymore. Not any more. The offensive scheme's going to change a little bit, I think for sure. But all the Raider, uh, all the Rams did was lose OBJ, and now that just makes Cooper Cup even more of the primary target, like he was before they got OBJ. Just dominating, just dominating. Slot, pass, slant, deep slant, sideline route, zigs, cutting across the middle. Open, always. So, it's a tough take there from Timo. I don't think he actually believes it. But if he does, yikes. Yikes. So, either way, that's going to do it for Thursday's episode. Because there wasn't a ton going on in the sports calendar right now. We would talk baseball, but that's what we do on Between the Stitches. That's the baseball-only show we have. So go check that podcast out right now. We will have a new episode out. We appreciate you guys tuning in. Because you guys are awesome. If you're new, subscribe to the YouTube. Follow us on, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social media. Check out the Patreon. We appreciate the support from you guys, as always. Thank you for listening to episode number 29 
of the Phenomenal Fan Podcast. And well, guys, we'll talk to you guys next week, potentially with a new Stanley Cup champion. Thanks for listening to the Phenomenal Fan Podcast. Want more? Follow us on social media and subscribe to Patreon for exclusive content.